This is episode 329 of the AWS podcast, released on August 25th, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a regular guest on the podcast. I'm joined by Randall Hunt, who's a senior technical evangelist here at Amazon, amongst other things. Welcome back to the podcast, Randall. Hello, how are you? I am good. How are things in uh, LA, LA land, La La Land? Los Angeles is perfectly beautiful today. Uh, looking forward to some more sun in the foreseeable future, which is, you know, all year long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I have been in LA and it has rained on, one, on more than one non-consecutive no, like, I, uh, occasion. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's not Seattle. <laughs> Very true. Now we're going to talk about a really fascinating topic today, which I know a lot of people have have been challenged with, not just, I guess, recently in the world of the cloud, but kind of always when it comes to software architectures, which is I have data. I want to put it in some sort of persistent store. Which one do I choose? And uh, it's a it's a vexed question, isn't it? But there's there's history to, to, to guide us on this because this is not a new question. Often I think people feel a little overwhelmed because there are lots of different database choices uh, available to us. However, if I cast my mind back into the early 90s <laughs> when I were a lad and, uh, and choosing databases, we also had choices to make. In those days, it was things like, you know, do you use flat files or some sort of ISAM or do you use IMS databases or DB2s? Like you had, you still had choices. And then we kind of moved into this world where particularly in large enterprises, big licensing deals were done and big decisions were made to say there is one database to rule them all and that's what you're going to use. And I think we kind of ended up with a, for a while with the whole, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail type approach to software design. It tends to happen in <laughs> uh, software, doesn't it? A lot, a lot. It's like, huh, this is the only thing I have, therefore I will use it to purposes that it might not be best Everything suited. Everything is going to be Perl. <laughs> That's never the answer. And, and so, you know, now we have a lot more choice, which we'll get into, but I guess the, the fundamental question a lot of people face is how do I know what database to use? So how do we frame that conversation? To be honest, this is a question that, like you said, goes back to, I, you said the 1990s. I say it goes back to the 1970s oh, even. You absolutely. Know, you people yeah. like Michael Stonebreaker and uh, a couple other folks and graduate students all working on different versions of different databases. And then uh, normal form came out. So that was kind of like Edgar Cobb's thing yeah. was this normal form, this way of extracting and representing data. I just need to, 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 make my, the- to make my computer science lecturers happy. I need to say the key, the whole key, and nothing but the key. So help me, Cod. <laughs> <laughs> nothing but the foreign key. <laughs> the, if we, if we start talking idea. about voice Cod normal form, we've gone too far. Okay, just just gonna throw that out there. <laughs> All right, understood. So, I, I mean, the idea back then was the von Neumann architecture, which is this idea of the separation of a fast storage memory and you know RAM and slow memory, which would be storage. This would be your hard disk, your magnetic hard drive, and then the CPU had this strange interconnect and the precise numbers that those things interact with over has changed over the course of the several years that, you know, since 1978. And so the original versions of these databases, Oracle, DB2, SQL Server, I mean, even Microsoft Access and stuff, they were designed for a time where storage was the most cost intensive part 
of your workload. Yeah. And what happened was you had this normal form designed to, to minimize the duplication of data so that data could be joined from different locations. Well, if, you, if you think about how we design, if we think about how we design as well, so we're, we're constantly designing around constraints, but those constraints change over time. We still have constraints, but they're, they're different. And so, so that, that model that was used was, was for that, that storage constraint at the time. Absolutely. And listen, you know, I, I've been around for a couple of these little paradigm shifts over the years and these constraint changes over the years, but I'm certainly not the expert there. There's some people who have been around from the very beginning of Oracle until now, and they probably have a much better context than I do, but I've really focused a lot on everything that's happened since 2000 and that rise of NoSQL. And I, I don't like the term non-relational because the term non-relational implies that data doesn't have relations and data without relations, frankly, is not super useful data. <laughs> it's so a big bucket. <laughs> I prefer the term. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, it's a blob storage. So I, I kind of prefer the idea of NoSQL, which is you access it through a different paradigm than the traditional so, you know, from 1970 to the early 2000s, you have this kind of prevailing medium, which is SQL and relational databases that have referential integrity and lots of other really good, powerful constructs that help you build a lot of applications. And I am not in any way saying that those things are bad. Those things are perfectly good and reasonable. It's just that the CPU growth vastly outstripped the storage growth and vastly outstripped the memory growth. So these CPUs got faster, the memory got faster, and the storage kind of, it, it also got faster, but at a much slower rate. And so it became more beneficial to kind of keep things in memory. It became more beneficial to shift more work over to the CPU. And then storage got really cheap, which allowed you to start duplicating different pieces of information. And so you basically arrived into, I, I guess, seven fundamental categories of data, which were the traditional relational data, then key value data. And key value data can really be segmented into kind of two different types. There's kind of key to blob storage, but there's also key to document storage where you want to dive deeper into the individual part of the value part of the key. Mm. Then you have in-memory storage systems. These would be things like Redis or Memcached. You have graph storage. And then kind of on the newer side of things, you have search, time series, and ledger databases. So search search is a is a kind of very, very interesting concept because it, it plays across all different parts of the database spectrum because you, you have really, really slow storage that you're searching on, but you also want to serve the search results to your downstream consumers in a very fast fashion. So search kind of touches all the other different aspects of different databases. And then Ledger is Ledger and Time Series are kind of the two newest ones on the block. And you know we can dive deep on any single one of those, but we have a lot of offerings in each of these categories of AWS. And I, I can talk about any of those, but does that, that categorization make sense to you? Yeah, I think, I think that gives you a, a much more sort of directed view of where, where to focus and where not to focus. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of folks struggle with is trying to learn everything and you don't need to know everything. You just need to know it exists out there and you, you sort of dive into it when you need to. And this probably brings us to a really good exactly. point of the conversation, which is when, when starting to choose what sort of store of data you need, the question is not what brand am I going to use? What format am I going to use? Do I know SQL? So I'll just use SQL and just putting out there, huge fan of SQL, use it all the time. But the, the fundamental question is what is the access pattern of the data? And then we start from there and work backwards. So maybe let's talk about what some exactly. of those access patterns look like and we can kind of use that to inform the next part of the conversation. Right. So access pattern pattern driven development is a pretty popular concept now. And people just, I, I don't know, I we should have been doing this from the beginning. There's actually a really great paper from Michael Stonebreaker back in the early 1980s that talks about 
access pattern-driven development. And this was the paper that kind of originated Postgres. And a lot of the concepts that we used to inform the underlying storage engines for relational databases, for document databases, for in-memory databases and graph databases, those were all things that were talked about back in the 1980s, but the hardware just wasn't good enough at the time. So when we talk about access pattern-driven development, what we're really talking about is how are your users, whether those are consumers of a web app, whether they're data analysis people who are going and building out models, how are the consumers of your data accessing that data. And there are a couple core ways that people will do that. So oftentimes people will want to perform referential integrity based joins on data. And that's a good fit for a relational database. Uh, even more often, people will want to just store some data for a period of time, maybe modify a few attributes and then pop it off again. And that ends up fitting really, really well into a key value database, something like Amazon DynamoDB. And then maybe people want to do much more deeply nested introspection into their documents that would map very well to Amazon DocumentDB. And then sometimes people are trying to extend uh, session control. So let's say you had a web app like WordPress or maybe even an e-commerce site or, or something that was storing some user's web session in memory and it was serving that along with the content for the page. That would be a really good fit for something like Redis or Memcached which are both available in the managed offering with Amazon Elasticash. Then you have graph databases. So you have the RDF format, which is something like the, the RDF spec, where you have these universally unique identifiers. You have rich Sparkle queries, which are similar to you know common SQL that people already know. And then you have kind of newer on the block, something like Gremlin and Tinkerpop, which allows you to specify data in a more imperative format. And both of these methods of access let you write these graph queries that used to take you know mental gymnastics across a relational database. You, yeah. you would have multiple foreign key tables and insanity going on, you know, multiple levels deep of nesting and, and really complex joins. You can take all of that and kind of extract it out and put it into a very simple Gremlin query and get the same results in much less time. So and, and it is it is really optimized for those sort of you know relationship type graphing use cases. And the other the other exactly. the other of course benefit there, Randall, is you can use the phrase tinker pop in normal conversation with a straight face. <laughs> It, it depends on who you're talking to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, they're, they're really cool customers that we have people like uh, Siemens Corporate Technology who are going and building out very complex relationships across their whole business using something like RDF. So they have a complex set of businesses within their, their larger corporate brand. So they, they do everything from, from turbines to power generation to medical equipment. You know, it's all over the place, but they know where it's all manufactured and they know that each one needs predictive maintenance and they, they use Neptune and they use RDF to kind of track all of that and to basically use the graph as the one level removed from each canonical data store. So what that means is they have a canonical data store for each section of their business, but they they funnel all of that data into the graph database so they can query it for this predictive maintenance or, or even analytics or machine learning based workloads. So graph databases have really seen an ascendance in the past, let's call it 10 years. And I, I think they have a lot further to go. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases and, of the more people use it, the more we know what they need to 
be able to do where they fit very effectively. So they're, they're still pretty early on, relatively speaking. Certainly there's some really large users of them, but I wouldn't say the exactly. use of graph databases is pervasive at this stage. I would agree. It's probably day one. You know, it's a very mm. popular phrase we use at Amazon. It's mm. always day one, but graph databases are definitely in day one. Time series databases are day one. Ledger databases are day one. Search search is uh, search is a little more mature than yeah. those other categories. Yeah. So we have, you know, managed Elasticsearch and things like that. And there are a lot of customers who are using that, but that basically forms from the idea of you have this kind of core library, something like a stemming library, which knows some things about the language that it's searching on. And it's typically built around, you know, human language search. So it's, it's not search, you know, like a regular expression. It's, it's really doing a little bit of introspection into the query that goes into it. So let's say I would just search for the best ramen ever. And if I, you know, the key terms there are best and ramen, the and ever are less useful to the search. So there are tools within different programming language. One of them is called LibStimmer, which is kind of the core of a lot of these different libraries. And then there, there are other projects like Apache Solar and Lucene that will go out and kind of extract the idea of the query and then search based on that idea using a lot of different regular expressions and inverted trees and all kinds of fun stuff like that. But, you know, search search is definitely a place where people want to put their data and forget about it. And in the past, it's been a little bit hard to do because something like Elasticsearch or something, other search engines, full text search engines, MongoDB and, and even Postgres have been a pretty hard management lift. You know, you, you had to maintain a set of servers, you had to to keep them up to date. You had to do all this other stuff. So the managed offerings really kind of help people out there. And yeah. we've seen a lot of people kind of taking advantage of that over the years. Particularly because a lot like, of those uh, databases Airbnb. tend to be... A lot of those databases tend to be really, really big. They are, yeah. It's hard to manage because, when they're big. Again, you're not even being efficient in the way that you're storing information when you put it in our search database, right? The You're not following that normal form approach. You're basically storing documents and then querying those documents and, and looking for kind of machine learning inferred responses from those. And I, I think, you know, the idea, kind of to get back to your original question, I know I've been talking for a long time now, but the idea is, all of these different databases exist because they're not necessarily storing different data. They're not necessarily storing different concepts, but they're optimized for retrieving the data in the most efficient way. And if I were to sum up everything, I would say what you want to do is you want to figure out what is the most amount of information that is relevant to your user that you can fetch in a single network request. So a single network round trip, hey, database, give me the stuff that I need to render this page. And then database responds and says, okay, here the stuff where it's not having to go and run these complex aggregations or joins or any of this other nonsense. The database just has it in the format that it needs and can get it right over to you. And lots of customers, they end up taking advantage of like 10 different databases, right? Because yeah. they, they need it in different places in their applications. And it really feeds into optimization of performance and customer experience. And that's one of the big reasons why people start to explore different approaches because whichever particular technology they've chosen may be, may be struggling from a performance perspective or responsiveness perspective. And that, that can also apply not just with things like relational databases or document databases, but also even in-memory databases. Because on the one hand, you say, well, it's in-memory, it's super fast, it's great. But typically the, the model is quite simplistic, relatively speaking. But also if you right. turn off all that stuff, then you've now got a warming problem on your hands when you start the system back up again. So it's, it's, it, there's no sort of one-size-fits-all solution here. I don't think there is. Now, I, let, me, let me kind of play devil's advocate for a second here. There is an argument to keeping 
running things in one data store perhaps longer than you really intended. And that is, it is cheaper to run a single data store than to run multiple data stores. Yes. And that's kind of the premise that a lot of customers will present to me. And sometimes that's true. Hmm. But I also often challenge that assertion because you are essentially, and, and this is something that happened to us at Amazon in, in our retail business. You know, we we had kind of this single canonical data store and this whole team dedicated to that data store. And they were limited in the amount of migrations they could run. They were limited in the amount of content they could really bring on and the new tools they could bring on because it was a single team responsible for serving hundreds of other different parts of the business. So when customers present to me this idea that, oh, it's just so much cheaper to keep everything in, you know, Microsoft's SQL Server or so much cheaper to keep everything in Postgres, why would I ever consider these other data stores? A lot of times it comes down to there is a feature that is outgrowing the rest of your app and you want to unblock that individual feature. Yep. And by having a different data store and a different access pattern, you can unblock that single feature. And it also lets that team continue iterating at a speed that the rest of the business is not able to iterate at. So the kind of cost argument, I think it's perfectly valid, but it doesn't always... You, it you doesn't trump everything. Think beyond yeah. Exactly. You have to think beyond the infrastructure cost and think about what is the cost of building out additional features in my business. Customers like Airbnb, actually, you know, they they were using DynamoDB for user search history. They were using RDS for their kind of backend referential integrity stuff. But Airbnb, you know, they had an ops team of, I think it was five people or something for a really long time. Yeah. And they, what they did is they ended up throwing elastic cash in front of everything because they were like, hey, you know, we, we huh, suddenly pasta. have 100,000 people <laughs> hitting this website and uh, we didn't expect that. And we need to be able to uh, essentially render relevant content for our users without hitting all of our downstream databases. And that combination of databases is what, you know, you know if, if people take nothing else away from this podcast, what I want them to take away is the idea that you can use these databases in conjunction. Like Correct. you said, there's no one size that fits. Right. And often they work really closely together. So, for example, with um, if using they RDS, do. you can you can drop Memcached in front of that. I think from memory, seamlessly with one of the the particular engines. I forget off the top of my head which one. But it's it's that classic case of well, you know, if I've got a lot of read traffic, I can use an in memory database for that in front of which which is Elasticache in front of my RDS instance. So I'm still getting persistence, but I'm getting a performance boost. But if 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 things go bad, I'm still okay. And even one tier removed from that, back towards the web tier with something like API Gateway, you can turn on. Cam- Caching, which actually uses Elasticache under the hood. So yeah. Elasticache is yeah. using or sorry, API Gateway is using Elasticache under the hood to provide that caching. And then, you, I mean, again, you have customers like DynamoDB. So they have their, so, so you have customers like Duolingo, which are using DynamoDB as their sort of, you know, canonical data store. And they have, I think it's, I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like 31 billion different <laughs> language exercises. And they store all of this data, but then they keep the transactional data in Amazon Aurora and they stream from Aurora into their caching and into their kind of catalog data store. So these databases, they're all very much interrelated. It's its not like you choose one and that's your canonical source of data until the end of time. Yeah. And, and that's where I think the, the problems, some of the problems I've certainly run into myself in the past have come from a situation where you've got a database that's suddenly is subject to what I would call cross-cutting concerns, where the, the access patterns of different parts of functionality or different use cases within the organization fundamentally clash with one another. And so you can't, you can't design for optimality for both of those cases. They're sort of mutually exclusive. And so you either end up with one 
function that works really well and one that really sucks, or both of them equally suck, which means that someone's going to be unhappy or everyone's going to be unhappy. And that's that's the sort of the challenge that, that we faced in the past. The typical outcome is everyone ends up being unhappy because maybe one person's unhappy for a little while and then it shifts over to another person being unhappy. But the eventual outcome is you're trying to serve too many needs with one size fits all. And it just, you know, one size doesn't fit anybody really. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one other factor here is scale. And so, you know, there is there is the, a strong argument, as you said, for keeping one database for a, at least a period of time. Now, if you've got a if you've got only a few you know gig of data or a few hundred gig of data, you probably really probably doesn't matter unless you have a very specific use case. So this the classic it depends card that I'm going to play here. Uh, it doesn't really matter what database you're going to choose early on because you're just trying to get a, a result. And that's where often a relational database is you know quick and easy. You spin up an Aurora instance, you're running Postgres on it, and you're off to the races. Even Aurora serverless. I yeah. Know the yeah. advantage of Aurora serverless is especially for dev workloads when it's spun down. You know you're paying nothing. You're, well, you're not paying nothing, but you're paying solely for the cost of storing the data. Yeah. And that's one of the advantages of this kind of new concept where the separation of storage compute exists. And I just want to point out that was part of the original Postgres paper way back in the 1980s. So even though it <laughs> nothing's took this new, long, you know, thirty. <laughs> It took 30 years for this stuff to exist. It, the ideas have been around for a really long time. It's just the implementation ends up being quite difficult. And but it, it, yeah, I, I mean- I was going to say implementation is, is, is a really interesting topic because I think this is where one of the gotchas comes in that we need to make sure people are really aware of is that doing data design for a relational database, for example, is very different to doing it for a key value store. And you know, we, we depending on, on when you were trained, you sort of have different capabilities and different familiarities. You know, I can, I can do an ER diagram with the best of them, but that's not going to help me when I'm designing an access pattern for DynamoDB. It's completely different. And so understanding how to do different. your design informs how easy or hard it is to use. Because I've often seen people say, I'm going to try DynamoDB. And then they basically overlay a classic relational database schema onto DynamoDB and go, it's not performing the way I want it to. It's like, well, no, that's not how you do it. And then you look at some of the, the presentations by some of the amazing folks who do some really detailed DynamoDB designs. And they're doing things like, hey, it's one table with everything in it. And like, but my head's going to explode because my lecturer told me never to do that. And But in this model that actually works really well. So we need to be thinking about that, don't we? You do. And, you know, Simon, I'm going to, I'm going to refer you to some homework here. I hope that's okay. Thank you. Please do. There are two really, really excellent reInvent presentations. So one is from Rick Houlihan. And I believe Rick has done this presentation in every year since 2016. I just go ahead and hop to the the most recent one, which was the the 2018 reInvent. Hop to Rick Houlihan's presentation about advanced DynamoDB design patterns. And it walks through the real world use cases where it's designing, hey, the Kindle store or, hey, the Amazon e-commerce shopping cart. You know, it walks through literally the schemas and designs that we use to operate these very, very large businesses. There's another excellent, excellent presentation from Snapchat back in reInvent 2017. And I I believe they repeated this in 2018, but it was was mostly the same content. And the, the 2017 one had a lot of energy. So I'd go watch that YouTube video. And the 2017 reInvent video from Snapchat talks about how they use DynamoDB to scale and auto scale their stories feature. So if you think about events like the World Cup or New Year's Eve, where you have all of a sudden so much more traffic than you have at, at your base state. And I mean, Snapchat's base state is probably pretty high anyway, but let's, <laughs> let's just imagine all of a sudden you have you know 100x the existing traffic. Something like DynamoDB, which is a managed service, you don't have to preempt that. You know, it's always nice to, to shoot Amazon support an email and say, hey, <laughs> be nice to know, but hey, you don't a have lot to of traffic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
and that service can expand dynamically to and adjust to that load. And then much more importantly than that, after it's gone up, it can go back down. And customers like Capital One and Lyft all take advantage of DynamoDB for those sorts of features. And it's, you know, it, I'm not I'm not supposed to have favorites, you know? <laughs> but, but if I were starting a new project today, I'm very partial to MongoDB and the, the document model. But if I were starting a new project today, I'm fairly sure I would just go for Dynamo and I'd start about modeling my data that way because it fits very well to this idea of, hey, let me outline every query that this app is going to need to make. And then I'll just design my data in that fashion. And you do some weird things sometimes where you're concatenating different parts of the data and you're mm. performing regular expression searches on parts of it. But that exercise really only has to happen once when you first design your app. And then you never have to think about scaling your data tier again, which is really, really weird as a longtime developer. Yeah. It's weird to not have to think about the data tier. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 it, it, like that's the thing. It's it, there's some mental model changes that have to happen, and it's hard to break out of our habits because I'm the same as like you know if, if I had to just grab a database, I'm going to grab a, a relational database of some kind because I know it, it feels comfortable and easy and familiar, but it doesn't mean it's right. And maybe speaking of which, I mean, the, I, there's a domain that we haven't talked about a lot, which I want to get into, which is the ledger type databases. And this is really interesting to me because I know I've spoken to a lot of customers who are like, I, I think I want some kind of blockchain type solution, but I'm not sure why, or I need some of the elements of a blockchain solution, but I don't want the immense processing overhead involved. And this is where I think QLDB is a fascinating and and really appropriate solution to a lot of these very specific type of storage problems where I want an immutable store of what happened. So that's an interesting kind of take. And I, I think that Andy Jassy really outlined this very well in his keynote at reInvent back in 2018. And there are really two different sections there. You know, you have blockchain on one side and, and we have managed blockchain offerings. But underlying a lot of the blockchain use cases is this idea of a ledger database. It's, hey, I want something that is cryptographically verifiable across a series of transactions. And I want this because imagine a situation where, you know, you're brought to court and you have to say, could this database have been modified? And and in a non-ledger database, the, the answer is often yes, technically it could have been. Whereas with a ledger database, if any single piece of the chain is tampered with, the resulting item is no longer true. And this is really useful in cases like healthcare and you know, even the DMV. That's the, the really common example that we talk about is you know, someone purchases a car. Okay, this person has purchased a car, they get their entry into the ledger, and then you SHA-256 hash that section of the item and you take and add on the next item that's being added. So maybe it's a new owner. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe this car was in a crash. It's just some addition to the existing database. And you're not really adding too, too much in terms of storage to this item. You're really just saying, hey, you know, every time a change happens, I'm going to calculate a new identity based on the history of this item so that every change to the item is cryptographically verifiable by working backwards through the chain. And that is a really, really powerful construct that it applies in a pretty large number of use cases. And a lot of these are things that I personally had never thought about before. I I'd never thought about what database ran the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Mm. Yeah. There's, and there's, that's the thing. There's many use cases where you, you do have a sort of central authority. So you, you're comfortable with that, but that authority still wants some sort of immutable store of information. Exactly. Now, one, one other issue that comes up when we start talking about multiple databases is of course reporting, because uh, if I've got one Hong Kong great SQL database, I can write you business intelligence type queries till the cows come home because I have my Swiss army knife of SQL and I can union and join and views and 
do all kinds of cool stuff really, really fast. However, in this multi-database world, that option goes away. And so I sort of sit back and go, hmm, how am I going to write the reports I need to do? So how do we solve that problem? So a lot of times people will use aggregation in a data warehouse, something like Redshift or even something like S3, and they'll use that as their canonical query and ad hoc analytics store. But there's also this idea that the graph database could be that store. Again, there's no real issue with duplicating the data, right? Like store, storage is pretty cheap now. I think this is a weird mental block that we all have to get over is we used to think that, oh, I don't want to duplicate, you know, these two terabytes over here in a different format because it's going to cost money and I have to keep it up to date. Like you could duplicate those two terabytes every single day and it still costs less than the cost of the compute of querying it. So it's it's this idea that we can start modifying and duplicating and, and positioning the data in whatever format best suits the queries we want to run. And there, there are tools that exist within S3, things like Athena, that let you query using regular SQL, you know, TSVs or ORC files or yeah. CSVs, you know, any JSON even. All of this underlying data, you can just go and query it. It's, it's pretty impressive and powerful. It definitely changes the game. And, and I'll, I'll, you know, you, you talk about favorites. One of my emerging favorites is Athena for that very reason is that I can use my familiar SQL foo skills on, on data that doesn't come from that sort of relational background per se. Kind of means I get the best of both worlds and I, you know, f- throw QuickSight in front of it and hey, presto, I've got visual reporting pretty simply, which is nice. Well, you can't say presto because that's yet another way of doing it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, Athena uses presto, so. You know. Yeah. No, I. Uh, it's turtles I, all the way I down, Randall. <laughs> The, the amount of words we can use to describe our databases is decreasing every day as someone comes out with a new data store. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you if you take all of this stuff together, if you look at Redshift, Redshift Spectrum, Athena, if you look at Glue and doing ETL jobs and this kind of data ecosystem that exists, the kind of core competency still comes down to understanding your business because yeah. all of these tools exist and all of this information is learnable. You can learn what the query patterns and access patterns for all of these are. You can learn how they're optimized. But at the end of the day, you really need to understand what kind of queries are people making. And I think that's harder than any of the technical stuff that we talk about is is how do I figure out what these data scientists want? How do I figure out what these application developers want? And and that's the modern role of the DBA. That's kind of how it's evolved is you're not just sitting here, you know, throwing indexes on different columns anymore. You're trying to work with each team to understand what kind of query patterns they want and then spinning up the data in that best possible form for them to get those results. Yeah. It's using, it's using the right tool for the job, but the, uh, the adjunct to that is if you start down the track and you realize you've chosen the wrong tool, you can change it with a really low friction approach. And I think that's the other big difference is we used to spend a lot of time in analysis paralysis because you're playing all the what ifs because you knew once you made that choice, you were stuck with it. That's not the world we live in anymore. It's not at all. There's a, there's a tool called database migration service that we have. And as another tool that's kind of used in conjunction with that called schema conversion tool, shameless plug, my, myself and Nick Wash have worked on this twitch.tv series called database office hours that you, you're all more than welcome to take a look at. But we really kind of dive deep on individual database migration. So even going between different engines. So let's say you started out in Postgres or even Cassandra, and then you wanted to move from one of those into DynamoDB. You know, that is a use case that's supported by DMS. And a lot of times, you can do live migrations now. So you can actually take the 
canonical data store, you know, however many terabytes of like core data that you have, then you can take the hot data, the stuff that's changing really frequently, and you can stream those changes from the existing data store into the new data store. And that lets you do a seamless cutover. Maybe it's just DNS or, or some, you know, application push where you're changing the connection string from one data store to another data store. So that is a problem. I, I mean, I, I remember working at other jobs where, you know, SCP and rsync and, <laughs> and those were the tools that we would use to kind of copy data over and, and, and you don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> Dump <Exactly. and> load. <laughs> Well, this, and, you know, the, the other thing is when you look at DocumentDB in, in particular, there are some customers of MongoDB who they measure their time to add a new replica or a time to add a new shard in calendar weeks, weeks, wow. not, <laughs> not, <Wow>. not days, <laughs> not, not days. hours, weeks. weeks. Yeah. And that is kind of just the nature of the, the mechanism that's used for sharding and the mechanism that's used for replication. Whereas when you separate storage and compute, which is a really popular paradigm of across the Aurora engine, across Neptune, and across DocumentDB. When you separate the storage and the compute, you get this huge advantage of saying, hey, I'm just throwing another pointer at the existing storage. And then I'm I'm basically you know, hydrating the cache on the existing compute node, and there's nothing else left to do. Yeah, it's a very different model, which offers different options. So Randall, thanks so much for coming on and helping us kind of demystify which database you might want to use. And how do people find you? I'm on Twitter all the time, JR Hunt on Twitter. And then you're more than welcome to email me, randhunt at amazon.com. I, I answer customer questions all day, every day. And there's a great Twitch series where we talk about all of this stuff, twitch.tv slash AWS. Fantastic. And we'll put links in the show notes as well. Randall, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always great to talk to you. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to send any of that do tell others about the podcast it's great would you spread the word and until next time keep on building